You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 532, the Sgt. Pepper movie that united hostile critics in 1978, trailer core and insipid Christmas TV commercials, and how music fans are exploited and put at risk. That's all coming up after Hard Fight and Hard to Beat. Upon Thames Fine is still going, but on something of a lengthy hiatus. This, mm. though, one of five top th- uh, 20 hits from their first album, number nine in the UK in 2005, Hard Fi and Hard to Beat. 
I I loved that when it first came out. I still do really really like that. I remember I just I'd played it all the time. I think I bought it on CD single actually. It was I was when I was mm. a, a student working at Marks and Spencers, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was I thought it was incredible. Uh, they were a great band, very underrated I think. Interestingly, if I remember this correctly, which I think <laughs> I am, Ed Miliband picked Cash Machine by Hard Fire as one of his Desert Island discs. I think so. Oh. Yeah, so they had an unusual yeah. an unusual fan base. But yes, I I I love that. I think it's uh, it's it's got such a kind of summery charm about it. I think it did yes. very well because it was really it must have been released in the summer. I think I remember it being absolutely everywhere on sort mm. of TV. It was hard to miss, haha, as well as hard to beat. It was yeah, yeah. I remember it being blaring out of sort of Weatherspoon style places that I used to walk <laughs> past when I was work, working in a, in Hastings and Eastbourne. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I think it's great. Well, thanks for joining us for Parish Council episode mm. 532. I'm Terence Stackham and back from what can only be described as a hedonistic weekend in a really exotic location. It's Juliet Harris. It is me, fresh from participating in a buzzer quiz in a Catholic um, sixth form college in Birmingham. What can I say? I go to all the glamour locations so you don't have to. Hello. La Vida Loca, living Indeed. La Vida Loca. Yes, I was um, I was the Ricky Martin of the <laughs> Midlands for a while. Now, let's fly back in time for a moment. It's 1978, and Peter Frampton had the best-selling album two years previously, 1976, mm. um, and the Bee Gees were riding high after Saturday Night Fever. Yes. So bringing them together to star in a movie based on Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band could hardly fail, surely. They had George Martin on board as musical director. Robin Gibb was so confident in the movie, he said, and I quote, Kids today don't know Sergeant Pepper, and when those that do see our film and hear us doing it, that will be the version they relate to. And remember, unfortunately, the Beatles will be secondary. You see, there is no <laughs> such thing as the Beatles. When ours come out, it will be in effect as if theirs never existed. So, end of quote. So, Jules, like me, you travel back and watch the Bee Gees, Peter Frampton, and 82-year-old George Burns in this Sergeant <laughs> Pepper movie from 1978. Um, can you confirm that this is now the only version of Sergeant Pepper and it's as if the Beatles never existed? existed well i mean to be fair to mr gibb all of us make statements at some point in our <laughs> lives which which with the benefit of hindsight don't age very well and that statement is no exception i mean the things you make me do for this podcast it never <laughs> never fails to boggle me so so i sat down to watch this my expectations were pretty low as uh, as helped by the uh, rotten tomatoes rating of this um so so those that are unfamiliar with this there is a website called rotten tomatoes um which uh, is sort of has reviews critics reviews and also audience scores and it's either they're either fresh or rotten depending on the percentage this is 11 percent on rotten tomatoes which is not a, a, a well interesting the audience good, is it? the indian the audience score is 44 percent, so the audience don't hate this quite as much as the critics do um it was moderately successful apparently at the time albeit that it got a complete shooing from everyone so i watched this um i mean i i didn't watch all of it i'm sorry i didn't make it to the end I'll give you, I'll let you into a secret. 
Neither, Neither do, do I. No, fair enough. I mean, what I would say is, firstly, the music of the Beatles is timeless. So that kind of got me through it, most of it. I was, you know, really surprised that they that they were, were willing to put themselves, their names to such tosh. And also <laughs> that George Martin was so involved. Although having said that, I did enjoy some of the arrangements of the songs, actually. That was one of the things that kind of kept me sort of in it, really. I thought there was some nice, I had made some little notes. I thought the strings on the version of I Want You So Bad were actually quite interesting. So, so it wasn't a total write-off, but it was as near as a total write-off <laughs> as you can get. Although having said, I mean, I, I took little notes. I mean, it was the, they talked about the, the original Sergeant Pepper band and how they, they played through all these decades, including the Great Depression, to which I have written, was it caused by them slash this film? <laughs> um, also, there was a, I, I mean, there was a bit where the original Sergeant Pepper's band, um, the Sergeant Pepper himself drops dead, to which I've written, I am jealous as him, as if he then didn't have to sit through the rest of the film. Um, it was was not good. Although, having said that, the one bit of the film that I genuinely enjoyed and I can't explain I love George Burns I think George Burns is so brilliant I, I just he always makes me laugh I have to say despite everything I really enjoyed his version of fixing a hole oh, I thought it you? was really I thought it was good I thought it was I quite enjoyed his sort of um his slightly doleful kind of um yes. slightly and I mean I've put it's been it was ruined by singing kids but then isn't everything so so <laughs> yeah I'm I it was it was I mean I, I could just about bear it for the first 40 minutes but it just it just turned into this I mean that the plot was so nuts I mean that the mix of people it was even weirder than the Italian job in terms of people that you can't believe are in the same film when you tell people that that Michael Caine Noel Coward and Benny Hill are in the same film and it's the Italian job nobody ever believes you when you look at the cast list with Sergeant Peppers I mean it's weird enough that you've got you know that you've got um um you know the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton as a band that that is Yes. Slightly odd in itself, and um, George Burns. But it's when you it's when you get as far as um, it's what, when their manager is Paul Nicholas. You think, okay, this is a this is a bit weird now that Paul that Paul Nicholas mm-hmm. is is in this. This is a bit unusual. And then the villain that is Mister Mustard, a AKA uh, well Frankie Howard turns up, doesn't he? Is the villain. And you've also got a secondary villain in Donald Pleasance. I what know. on earth is Donald Pleasance doing in this? Um, Steve Martin, Alice Cooper, Billy Preston, who God knows why he wandered yes. in. But anyway, it's, it's a very odd mix of people. I have real sympathy for Sandy Farina, actually, who is who mm-hmm. was the, who was this was her debut film, was introducing yes. Sandy Farina, and was pretty much the only thing. It killed her career, stone dead, from <laughs> what I can see. She apparently wrote "Kiss Me in the Rain" for Barbara Streisand. Um, I looked her up on wikipedia and it has i think the most depressing upsetting ending of a you know sort of a, a wikipedia entry the final sentence she is currently a session singer for television commercials mm. i really feel sorry for her i thought she sang well in this it was a complete mess of a film um and i i just feel sorry that that you know because you know most people in this were pretty awful really there were some terrible performances there were some really awful acting out of a plain window pulling faces by the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton yet grumpy feminist rights why is it that nobody else had their career killed by this but Sandy Sandy Farina somehow did but yeah there were I couldn't decide if it was 
really, really cynical, really, really radical, really naive, or all of those things at the same time. It 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 seemed to try to do everything, and it really did nothing very well, from what I could see. I'm not sure if it's the worst film I've ever seen, but I, I, you know, it wasn't good. <laughs> it wasn't no, good. I really did try with this movie. I'd never seen it before, and I felt it couldn't be as terrible as the review, surely, but it was. It was awful. Mm. It was horrendously bad. I mean, really didn't want to fast forward, but by about the hour mark, yeah, I couldn't that, that, bear I think that's it. when I broke pretty much. I kept jumping 30 seconds on, you know, on, on my thing. I kept punching the 30 seconds counter. The, the, the only saving element, I think, of this hideous movie was it provided a lot of work for extras and supporting artists. Yes, because there were, there everyone in the world was in it, weren't they? Dozens in each shop. It was huge. It was like Magical Mystery Tour without the drugs, I thought. And it was <laughs> terrible overacting, as you mentioned, especially from the Bee Gees and Robin in particular, who carried on like he was in a silent movie and that he yes. had to sort of act out in mime what he was trying to say. It was most peculiar. Some significant lows from this uh, the cast also got Steve Martin destroying Maxwell Silverhammer. That, um, that was really he, well. He he took oh, a hammer to it. Some might say it really wasn't yeah, good. Really. Alice Cooper annihilated because I mean the casting was terrible. As you say, Frankie Howard and his toupee as the bad. <laughs> that was that was terrible. that was extremely strange. I just didn't. I mean, it seemed to be sort of half of the casting seemed to be this sort of vaguely glamorous American or or sort of or, or rock stars. Then the other half. You know, Paul Nicholas and Frankie Howard, you know, the sort of the the dregs of 70s British kind of TV was sort of mm. rubbing alongside it. It was very it was very unpleasant. What you missed if you didn't get to the end, because I, I did mm. I went to the end, but by fast forwarding, as I say, sort of 30 seconds a minute on at the end, very end, there was a bizarre all-star I, I recommend you go back and just see the last three okay, minutes because right. the, there's a bizarre all-cast all-star cast um singing the title track sergeant peppers and yes. they're, they're all sort of spread out in it like like um when the whole school used to get photographed oh, yes yes know, so everybody's spread out like that and it's people who aren't in the movie so there's like robert <laughs> stigwood himself you know inevitably but suddenly that wait a minute you know there's bobby womack minnie ripperton peter noon from Hermit that Hermits, is so jack random. bruce from cream bonnie Raitt, dame edna everidge there's <laughs> About 50, 75 people, and you can sit there and think, oh my God, look, there's so and so, there's so and so. Nothing to do with the movie. That How this really movie strange. got commissioned and released, I'll never know. And, it's really um, weird. Although the weird thing you say that what's made me sort of slightly interested slash panicky now you say that yeah. is there a load of footage on the cutting room floor somewhere where all of those people are actually <laughs> in the film? And this film is actually, this film is the length of Cleopatra, and, and, and there's sort of five so. and a half hours of it. And, you know, maybe. Maybe in a kind of gentler world city, they would have released a, a, a sort of a DVD expanded yeah. box set reissue oh of this God. with all of the missing footage of all of all of Dame Edna Everidge and Frankie Howard having some sort of wrestling <sighs> match or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, I will try and watch that. That is this just the last five minutes thing. with the all star cast yeah. singing the, the, the Sergeant Peppers. It is. <laughs> and you see how many people you, spot, you think, wait a minute. You know, there's, there's the geezer yeah. from Herman's Hermits. It's the most strange. really weird, really weird. Sergeant Pepper, uh, the movie, it's available on different platforms all around the world. But it's on <laughs> if you want to go and see it. Um, it's on Amazon in the States and it is on DVD as well all around the world. Coming right up. What is Trailer Core 
and what does it have to do with <laughs> Christmas TV commercials? That's next after Neil Young. La, la, la. I really love that song. I love Neil Young in general, but there's something about that song that I just I really like. I think it's it's really gentle, but I really love it. Um, it's it, it's everything that Neil Young does well. I think in one song, it it was uh, recorded. It was written and recorded for his album Comes a Time, and it was covered by Nicolette Larson. I think a lot of people might be more familiar with it from her version, which was quite a big hit. It did well on the Easy Listening charts and the various charts in the US. And it was quite big on on um, in Australia and, and New Zealand and in that part of the world as well. I think there have been later versions. I seem to remember so for some reason simply read a sort of haunting my memory on this but um but but yeah I'm uh, there there was a lovely version that was that was um that was performed sort of at memorial concerts for Nicolette Larson who died in 1997 and they they did a um a tribute to her that raised $165,000 for the ULCA Children's Hospital and they um there was a version that was performed by the ensemble nice line up this Rosemary Butler Valerie Carter Carol King and Bonnie Raitt all singing that together yeah. in tribute so not that's the geezer from Herman's Hermits though no indeed or Dave Everidge but yes yeah. a very a very nice dial up nonetheless and uh, I, I that's uh, that's Neil Young at his kind of um, melancholy but humane best I think I love that that was a lot of love by uh, by Neil Young 
Yeah, there's no Neil Young better than 1970s Neil Young, in my opinion. Exactly. And with, with or without Crazy Horse. And that, that was a lovely track. Really enjoyed that. Uh, back in 2010, Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay for the movie The Social Network, which was mm. all about the founding of Facebook and the legal wrangling that followed. And the trailer for The Social Network featured a children's choir singing a, a, a maudlin, sombre version of Radiohead's Creep. And this seems to be widely accepted as one of the first examples of trailer core. That is um, trailers or commercials featuring slow, uh, funereal covers of pop songs. And since then, uh, Marvel's Avengers Age of Ultron, uh, mm. Fifty Shades of Grey, A Cure for Wellness, Black Widow. Just a few movies that have since then have used ghostly, slow, sad covers of songs like Smells Like Teen Spirit, Crazy in Love. I want to be sedated by the Ramones in a slow, funereal <laughs> version. Um, Vulture magazine published a column by Halle Kiefer with the headline, mm. This is our final plea. Stop soundtracking movie trailers with somber, on-the-nose covers. Uh, there are dozens of dozens, dozens and dozens of these now, Jules. Are, are we now jumping sharks? Or, or maybe, I don't know, do you love hearing these stripped-down versions in the latest movies? I th- I think what I find so frustrating about this, the versions in the movies and, and in the ads and things, mm. is that it's become so overused. I think, mm. and this this excellent article that to which we which uses the phrase trader call, which is excellent by the way. I love that as a kind of a description uh, by Ed Power in the Telegraph. Um, he makes the point that when it first happened, or, or rather one of the first sort of the, the first real moment of this was not the social network thing, although that was probably mm. the first moment in terms of the the films, but in yeah. terms of adverts. The first real moment that this happened was um do you remember Gary Jules um doing oh, Mad, Mad World? World. Yes, that was too. and that I think that was taken from Donnie Darko, but it was yes. that but it was I seem to remember it being on an advert as well or something. But anyway, that was the sort of the first That was a num- that was number one, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it did. Well, oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, well that and and the darkness, Christmas time, don't let the mm. bell end was Bell's end was was a um it was a, it was the last proper sort of chart battle. It was pre mm. all of the X Factor stuff. It was a yes. real chart battle. And I can still see, if I close my eyes, I can still see myself standing in the warehouse at the Marks and Spencers in which I was working <laughs> with two people listening to the radio to find out what was number one. It was on the last sort of moment where I really mm. did that and at the time it was a sort of a revelation really that you could take a take a song like Mad, for, Mad mm. World by Tears of Fears which was quite relentless and quite sort of aggressive in its way yes and and to find something new in it so that was a real that was a real I don't want to say novelty but it was really interesting and it did really well I think as a result and like all these things the money men and they the are inevitably men seize upon it and then you hear it absolutely everywhere and it never has the same same impact and it's almost become a sort of a joke now um you know i me and my friend joked last year what's john lewis's christmas album advert going to be this year and we were taking bets and i think we felt it was going to be um i'm still standing by elton john performed on a glockenspiel and a, and a <laughs> ukulele or something like that there's there's and and i think it's just become so cynical and this 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 um this article talks about that you know the latest for the latest thing which is a usual cloying sort of advert with a fairly 
electric dreams did not need to be slowed down it did not need to be you know it did not need to have anything done to it at least of all what's been actually done to it although i know i i wish lola young well who's the 20 year old that's 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 sort of doing it but as they as it's been put here her creative input into the track is probably minimal really and i get that it's an opportunity but i think it's become an opportunity in the way that x factor has and that it is a very limited opportunity and it perhaps in it like the curse of eurovision it perhaps does you more harm than good i think to to be to be doing this um apparently lily allen has disowned her own version of her of doing keen somewhere only we know she claimed she was bullied into doing it by her record label um uh, the um the there's a psychology behind this that makes it particularly cynical and um depressing i think really um We've got Simona Beniaka saying here that um, the it, they're, they're contrived to make us sit up and pay attention. She says, you react by saying, I feel I've heard this before. What the hell is this song? And then all of a sudden, when that clicks, that's the magical moment where the audience is invested into that emotional experience. Jonathan McHugh, who's a music director, a supervisor, says he's involved in the Guild of Music Supervisors, says it's what I call the old comfortable shoe phenomenon. You give people something familiar, like Destiny, child say my name in the new Candyman film and all of a sudden they're more engaged in the content and predisposed to enjoy what they're watching because they love that song and I think there's this thing that if you make a song very different a song that people love but you make it different not only do people love the song they're sort of pleased with themselves for working out what it is, I think. It's like when, when people go to see stand-up comedians, and a friend of mine said to me once that when people make very obvious puns, it's sometimes very satisfying to laugh at because if it's delivered properly, you get there before the comedian does and you can congratulate <laughs> yourself for getting the joke. And I think there's an element of that, of, you know, if you're listening to a very slow cover, you've got that... Oh, what's this oh I think I recognize this how does that go and then all of a sudden you find yourself I don't know weeping over weeping over a monster that's got lost in the woods or whatever the John Lewis advert is this year so I find it you know I find I, I found it interesting at first that I found Mad World genuinely you know the fact that I have such a strong memory of listening to it to see if it would get to number one or not that that it worked really well because it was such a different new thing to do, but it's just become so tedious and cynical. And let's not forget that they, in, in the case of John Lewis adverts, you can make things as magical and gruffalo as you like, but you're flogging fridges, aren't you? That's what John Lewis does. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to sell as, as much rich, not particularly necessary food. It's nice, but it's not, you know, essential, mm. is it, to, to people. Often, you know, quite expensive food in the case of, you know, people like, like Marks and Spencer. It's not just John Lewis that are at this. Mm. I mean, I have to say the Christmas adverts I always enjoy the most are the Iceland ones. They're great. They had Jason Donovan the other year. I am. Um, I love the fact that Iceland sort of lean into the fact that they're lower budget. And Jason Donovan was willing to be sold as sort of lower budget. And I admire mm. him for that. So, you know, I do get that Christmas adverts can be a magical thing i mean some of the 70s Woolworths ones were outstanding and the sort of the you know brings back memories of looking at the argos christmas catalog when you were when you were young so there is there is a sort of a magic of that that is that is that goes beyond this is the cynicism of the fact that this is retail and flogging stuff and can tap into that it's a difficult balance to get right marks and spencers i think do it better than than, than john lewis this year i just find it so cloying that that you know it, it makes it makes me feel like it's cynical I suppose we have to accept that these strategies work, otherwise why yeah, would true. producers continue to use them? But the, the the new John Lewis commercial featuring the trailer core slow version of Philoki and Giorgio Moroder's Together in mm. Electric Dreams, well, 
in common with many of, of these, I rush for the mute button when these commercials yeah. appear each year. Yeah, as I say, there must be focus groups giving very positive reactions to these like rather maudlin uh, elegies. Yes, <sighs> yes, it's true. I mean, having said that, though, occasionally, I mean, I know I've just said all we know is a curse. Mm. Gabrielle Aplin did a version of The Power of Love years and years ago, and that would have been about 2012, mm. 2013, that, you know, was very slowed down. However, it then gave her the opportunity to release Please Don't Say You Love Me, which is an excellent that I might choose in, in future weeks so I'm glad you got a chance to do that but yes like you say this John Lewis thing the uh, this uh, this uh, excellent article rather sums it up well where it says at the end the new John Lewis take is just scented candles turned to music which I really yeah. like as a phrase and it then says for a Christmas as magical as your first reads the tagline at the end of the ad as the androgynous alien whizzes back to its planet as it happens there is one magical gift John Lewis could share with the world it could stop assailing our senses with nightmarishly restrained commercial that would be a Christmas miracle we could all get behind. <laughs> Coming next, how pop music fans are being exploited and put at risk. Mm. And, and it's in plain sight. Um, that's right after this lovely track from Everything But The Girl. I was alone thinking I was just fine. I wasn't looking for anyone to be mine. I thought love was just a fabrication. A train that wouldn't stop my station home alone that was my consignment solitary confinement so when we met i was skirting around you i didn't know i was looking for love until i found you i didn't know i was looking for love until i found you honey i didn't know i was looking for love until i Just 
rather like the last episode's uh, Paul McCartney and George Michael track, this too was rather mm. hidden away as a bonus track on a Greatest Hits compilation. It was released as a single. It only made it to number 72 mm. in the UK. I think it's so lovely. Everything but the girl from 1993, and I didn't know I was looking for love. Yes, and we've that is a that is lovely. I'm a big fan of everything but the girl generally. But B, we've sort of accidentally themed. We we don't we don't necessarily consult each other when picking mm. our tracks, and we've accidentally themed with songs which other singers have had bigger hits with than the original. I didn't know for years. Well, I, I didn't know I was looking for love. Indeed, I, I also didn't know that I didn't know I was looking for love mm. was an everything but the girl original because mm. I was familiar with it from the version by Karen Ramirez. Yes. who had quite a big hit with it in 1998. Um, I had no idea that it was written by Everything But The Girl until I read somewhere that it was written by Everything But The Girl. And then I could suddenly picture Tracy Thorne singing it because it's very much seemed to be written in her register. And then, of course, I heard the Everything But The Girl version. But the Karen Maria's version got to number eight in the UK singles it chart. It was a dancey version. It topped the US Hot Dance Club play chart. How many words can you fit into one sentence um, in 2001? So, and it was quite a big hit across continental Europe mm. as well. So, so yeah, an accidental theme this week of songs that, <laughs> that have been made bigger by other people. I was mm. always a huge fan of that song. And mm. it just seemed to make a lot of sense. Because, like I said, I didn't know that I was looking for love was written by uh, Everything But The Girl. Yeah. And so it was, um, I have to say, sorry, Mr. Ramirez, but I rather prefer the Everything yes, But The Girl. But... fair enough. I mean, I, I, I do now, but, yeah, it, yeah. I still thought it was quite a, quite a good song. I was thinking this week about what could be fairly termed the first um, pop concert I ever went to. I was about Mm. seven, maybe, and there were pop stars to perform at the Christmas unveiling of the Big Tree in Trafalgar Square, you know, that comes over from Norway every year. Oh, yes, yes. And it was, I don't know, maybe 1963 or 64, as I say, maybe seven or something. My, My dad loved the new music from the Beatles and all the other new groups and singers. And so up we went. Um, on the train and all was okay until there was an announcement that Scylla Black was coming on Mm. and there was this massive surge forward in the crowd barriers went over and there were frantic appeals for people to move back Uh, luckily my father had been sensible and we were you know I was only very Mm. little we were near the back I think he was holding me up so that I could see Um, but the concert was more or less abandoned and we came home so there's there's nothing new at all in appalling and unsafe conditions for pop music fans and I feel I really do feel strongly about this I really feel this is part of what has come to be accepted as the conditions that pop rock whatever you want to call it fans will endure and this hides in plain sight we had terrible terrible tragedies at football stadia 30 plus years ago Mm. and we changed the way that football stadia work and the way we treat football supporters Mm. you know paying customers of course remember um forever yet go to particularly an outdoor gig um and you'll be treated abysmally in london you can be charged anything from a hundred pounds to five hundred pounds to stand for hours and hours with no cover from the weather in possibly super muddy conditions you're not allowed to bring in a chair at hyde park for example even Mm. if you're 60 70 80 years old no chairs 
There's no direct uh, sectioning um, in the main body of the arena to keep people in manageable numbers in specific areas. And I've witnessed people trying to run into the VIP Mm. areas at Hyde Park through or over barriers to try and get close to the stage. These are all dreadful conditions, yet it's become accepted. And it's I think it's just time way over time for it to be challenged, Jules. Yeah, I agree. And I, that's exactly when you said we were going to talk about this. You didn't mention the sort of the comparison with, with football and, and Hillsborough mm. and Heisen and those dreadful disasters and Valley Parade fire and all sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah, that was exactly what, what came, mm. the first thing that came to my mind and thinking about this. The um, I mean, we, we don't know yet the full facts of the terrible events no. um, at the uh, at, at the festival in Astroworld taking place um in Houston, um, there, you know, several people have died. Dozens more have been injured, but they're still very much trying to work out what mm. happened. It, it didn't seem dissimilar. There was reports of overcrowding. We talked about the Woodstock '99 film a mm. few weeks ago, and depressingly, it didn't seem like very much had changed. Exactly. And 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 what what sort of struck me as well was that. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But do you remember there was the disastrous fire fest a couple of years ago, oh, and we, gosh, and we all there'd yes. been films made of it, and yeah. it was and it was largely sort of people largely found it funny. I think mm-hmm. because the, I think the perception was, oh, these idiots that have paid this much money to go to this luxury festival deserve to be made to look like chumps. And I think also we found it funny because nothing. From from as far as I can recall, it wasn't a major disaster in the sense that they did have to airlift people out, I think. But it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, all these people have died as a result of which I think that, that it wasn't seen as, you know, a really serious thing. But the fact of the matter is, is that people could have died. It was so mm. badly organised that it could have been a real disaster. And it feels like we've kind of been tipping on the brink of disasters with, with large scale outdoor Very much for so. years, I think. The, the pri- you know, the way that it's the thing is, is that I wouldn't mind paying lots. Of, I mean, you know, I might. But if there are there are certain acts that we've talked about before that I would that, that we will probably both play, pay more money for than we ordinarily would because we would really want to see them. I paid quite a lot of money to to my for my ticket to go and see Brian Wilson because I was pretty much sure that would be the last time that he would be touring Pet Sounds and it pretty much is. So so there are certain I don't mind paying a lot of money. But if I'm paying a lot of money, you'd think, well, in which case then, yes, it's a big show to stage and there are lots of lots of costs involved in big outdoor gigs. Having said that, if you're charging a lot for a ticket, I'm willing to pay that. If I'm buying peace of mind that it's going to be well organized mm. and safe and you're going to have proper areas for me to go to and all that sort of stuff increasingly it seems like that doesn't happen just people are charged through the nose for the sake of it there's this very interesting article from bbc news um which i mean i have to say as much as he did amazing things at live aid if um if Harvey Goldsmith is telling you that you're charging too much for a ticket, yes, I do think you've probably gone quite far. And this is this wasn't the BBC. This is a Mirror article in which he slammed the ticket prices for Adele's Hyde Park concert, mm. which is taking part next year. General admission tickets are ninety quid. Yes. That's the lower level, and he said he would not pay that. It's expensive enough. Um, and then you get the Gold Circle at one one one. Um, sorry, the primary entry for £111, including booking fees, Gold Circle at 273 
Diamond Circle 379, Ultimate Bar and Terrace tickets for £579. And he says we never used to charge those prices. Um, and that he said, I say £90 expensive enough, although I would not pay that. He said that he argued about charging 250 quid for Barbara Streisand when she did BST. He said, I wanted to help lower the prices to make it more affordable. The people at the back of the field are the real fans. Also, these hospitality areas are half a mile away. So if you want to see the show, the last thing you want to be is in a VIP area. Hyde Park's a difficult place to work. Lord knows how much Adele is getting paid to do this show. She's not cheap. So, and a very subtle, a very sort of restrained use of ellipsis there at that point. Mm. And he's he's just said, you know, he, he's said he doesn't believe in golden circles. It just... It does feel like there is a real, there's always been avaricious music pro, uh, promoters. I mean, surely Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the film taught us that if it didn't do anything else. But yeah, I agree with you that it does seem like music fans are often created with contempt. And actually, although the safety issues in football have gone away, I would argue that football ticket prices and, and, and the way that football, ordinary football fans are treated compared to people in hospitality, there's some, there are some parallels here still, I think. And yeah, like like you say, I I you know for, I I get that in a post-COVID world, the music in the live music industry aspects of it have taken a massive hit. But interestingly, the people that have taken a massive hit are not the big promoters. They are the sound engineers that were without work for nine months. They are the the musicians that were trying to make a living that had nowhere to play. You know, the people that have suffered in this are not the people at the top tiers. They're people at the very below whose whose labour is needed to help the industry run. And yet they won't be seeing the benefits of those £275 ticket prices. I bet there is no need to charge those high prices for any reason other than avarice. I wouldn't mind so much if it was channeled back into making sure those events are safe. But as recent events have shown us, that doesn't happen. No. And I mean, we're talking about the, 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 you know, the, the, uh, financial fleecing. Let's put it. I'll be direct. Yes. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, the, the Adele tickets, as you say, between, sold out between ninety quid and five hundred quid for the different levels. Absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. But they sold out. You know, this is yeah. so, so, so. And I just, um, I just did a, a kind of bit of arithmetic there. Even if, if, if you say Hyde Park is going to let in sixty thousand people, okay, even yeah. if everybody only paid the ninety quid. Um, when we know there's loads paying much more than that, and if you, you know that's not going to include all the merchandise and uh, you know anything else that she can uh, get away with. Um, Ninety quid, sixty thousand people—that's five point four million pounds. Wow! Uh, just wow. from one day, she's doing two days. I mean, it's just preposterous. And the other thing about, um, as I say, using the word fleecing, try getting a hot dog and a Coca-Cola yes. at a leading London concert venue by the by the Thames, and you'll get little change from twenty quid. Absolutely. I mean, just for a hot dog and a Coke, and. You know, they know that people might want a souvenir from the merchandise store. And so they exploit you there, too. This I really do. I'm, I'm beginning mm. to think this is something of the hiding in plain sight thing. I mm. think this stuff needs to be called out. It, a T-shirt. You go to the current Rolling Stones No Filter Tour. Yes. T-shirt, $55. That's I mean, what so would, what, how, expensive. How much would that would cost to make? A fiver? You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's absolutely it's ridiculous. Dismal. It's ridiculous. And you want there's always been it's always been like that and there's all I mean when I used to go to gigs regularly at my university we always used to say that you'd walk past the band's official merchandise stand and you'd just go and buy a, a bootleg t-shirt outside for seven quid instead yes. because they'd be yeah. much more affordable so in a way I thought at one point they did seem to go through a phase where band prices t-shirts stopped going up constantly but now 
I get that perhaps smaller bands are more more reliant on merchandise than ever, but there's no excuse for the Rolling Stones to do it, I don't think. Well, I'm, I went to check on the, the rest of their merch. No filter uh, tour hoodie, $90, thank you very much. An official Rolling Stones ladies' denim jacket with the band's logo on it. Um, <laughs> Which sounds the... awful anyway, no offence, ladies, but it sounds Come hideous. along to the merch stand, Jules, that'll be $200 uh, to you. I mean, it's deplorable, but as I say, hiding in plain sight. And, and, and pop music fans are being put at risk due to disgraceful conditions. Yeah. And they're being ripped off as they do so. It it's... is just terrible. It's pretty revolting. And, and part of you might say, well, it, but, but there might be an argument, oh, well, if you're daft enough to pay that much money for a, a denim jacket, you know, more for you. But having said that, particularly younger music fans, it's part of the excitement of, you know, it, it, like you say, the, the souvenir approach is a good one. It's a good description. You know, you want to buy a T-shirt, if, particularly if you're a bit younger. It's just great to buy a T-shirt to say that you went to see a band at a certain date. It's really, it's really, you know, it's a really cool thing to do. It's, it's really nice. So in a way, although you might say, oh, well, if, you know, know a 50 year old that's earning good money is you know daft enough to pay 90 quid for you know for whatever then good luck to them again it's it's and it's particularly the exploitation of young fans that i get cross about i I agree with you it's this idea that you know that that people that are you know are are discovering how much they enjoy things like this for the first time you know I, i like you i despair slightly at it i can understand why smaller bands that are doing small runs of things and particularly in the post covid world might have to charge a bit more and i do get that but the money-making conglomerate that is the Rolling Stones, I can't help but feel they might have made enough money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's like just a last bit on this, a side issue. When I was doing the research for this about the Rolling mm. Stones stuff, I just came across by chance um, – the Saks of Fifth Avenue in New York. They sell oh, yes. band, they sell band T-shirts. I did that. Um, Saks are like the Harrods or Harvey Nichols yes. of America. No, yeah, I, I didn't know that. That's slightly surprising, but I've got this horrible exactly. thing. I know what you're going to say, but go on. Yeah, yeah. The Clash or yes. Nirvana T-shirts. Nothing special, just the band T-shirts. Yep. And I converted it to sterling pounds for a British audience. Okay, thank you. Two hundred and fifty-four pounds twenty-three pence. Oh, that's ridiculous. And the highest price one I could find. Uh, Saks of Fifth Avenue T-shirts. A sim- this, I thought this might interest you. A Simpsons T-shirt. You may oh, want yes. one. Oh yes, yes, yeah. I, w- I would like one. Uh, in sterling pounds, one T-shirt, five hundred and eight pounds forty-five pence. So as you say, if people are daft enough to pay it, then jolly good luck to you. Yes, uh, it's 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 you know it's just so cynical and unpleasant, isn't it? Really, it's um it's it's yeah. I'm 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 not a I'm not a fan of that, really. And hilariously, again, as a sidebar to the sidebar, mm. me and my friend Dave often mock and despair at HMV in the UK, which seems to be in real trouble again, from what I can gather. Right. And one of the reasons it's in real trouble is that it is apparently, and, and I've, you know, allegedly there have been issues with suppliers and payment thereof, which means that they they don't have a lot of options at times, I'm told. And, um, and, their vinyl is madly expensive. They've gone really big into vinyl again. But mm. when, when every time, I mean, our favourite game is going into HMV, looking at how much they're charging for records, going on my phone and then seeing them 10 quid cheaper from online mm. independent retailers. And yet the interesting thing is they charge stupid eyeball-watering amounts for, for records. And, of course, now that seems to be generally accepted wisdom, this is what they do. They recently shared an advert on Facebook, which they said, oh, coming soon, big sale. 
deal. And every comment underneath said something on the lines of, does this mean this re- your records will be at normal prices then? Mm, I mean, and but yeah, interestingly, they sell band t-shirts in there and mm. they're reasonably priced. <laughs> Weirdly. Well, it doesn't make if you sense, want, does it? If you, it does, it's weird. But, but then maybe you could say that HMV stopped being about selling music mm. very long ago and and they now know more, they're now in the t-shirt business rather than the record business. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, maybe they'd argue as well, and I don't know how valid this argument is, that online retailers don't have to pay um, business rates and for shop uh, costs and heating mm. and lighting and floor space. But it still doesn't uh, excuse the thing. And I know there is a big vine, worldwide vinyl shortage at the moment. So, of course, yes. supply and demand pushes Yes, but then, but then, but then, it's, but it, then it's, it's the, you know, lots of the records that HME sells are major labels or reissues of things mm, and, and actually do. you could argue yes. that hmv is part, you know by doing that is part of the ecosystem that has completely stuffed up you know the the you know everything world industries are under lots of challenges at the moment covid related in our part of the world mm. brexit related and you know when we talked previously about paul mccartney's latest album mccartney three coming out on all these different colored vinyls there were like 20 different colors that it was yes, released on a vinyl yeah. to collect the set they're doing a similar thing i think or not dissimilar thing with the new adele album a record store day has become this yeah, thing yeah. that we've talked about previously that it's just become reissue day mm. rather than record yes. store day and it's that that is stuffing up all the plants i know people that run small independent labels that have basically been told that they can't release any you know they can't guarantee getting anything from their suppliers and from their manufacturers until august of next year because basically all of the 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 big the big boys can muscle in the queue in front of them by just dropping their cash and that's that's what's causing these you know this kind of it's not exactly the shortage of vinyl is caused because the supply is completely stuffed up with 12 different color versions of Dell or whatever it is and it's yeah. it's you know it's 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 you know and again that's another way in which music fans are then exploited so it's so it's you know it's, but as you say you know they wouldn't be re-releasing all these versions if they didn't think people were going to buy them so so mm. i don't know what the answer is it's not like you get it's not even like you get a free garden gnome like you did with that <laughs> george harrison, george harrison. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for listening this week lovely to have you along yes thank uh, you for being along with us as always and to play us out a slightly scary song about uh, an incident in a forest Yes, it's a little bit creepy this, isn't it? it I'm is. sorry. It helps if you don't speak French. It's less yeah. scary if it's less scary if you don't speak French. Um don't google the lyrics unless you've got an adult present because it is a little bit scary. But no, I I I've really quite enjoyed this. I'm c- discovering a lot of things through um obviously other online listening services. Non-online listening services are available, but I subscribe to to Apple Music and I it often the radio station function that it makes you, which is records from your own songs from your own collection and, and also other stuff it thinks you might like. It's often thrown up some pleasures, and it throwed up that lovely Parcels track last week that we played. Oh, yes, and cool. I really like this as well. It's by a band that which I wasn't familiar called Le Scop. And if you if it's safe for you to come out from behind the sofa, you can listen to this. It's called uh, La Forette. Coup 
deuxième coup est parti Et fais bientôt la différence Dans la forêt je te retrouve à l'heure opportune Un rendez-vous improvisé sous la lune Sourire crispé Situation compliquée Je sens ton souffle qui me frôle le cou Un pistolet chargé me caresse la joue Listening to a Parish Council production.